Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello and welcome back to The Prospect Interview, the podcast where we speak to the brightest minds of today and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. My name is Samir Rahim. This week I'm going to be talking to Rebecca Rag Sykes, the author of Kindred, a book about the Neanderthals, our close cousins who we lived with for hundreds of thousands of years. They've always been an object of intrigue and mystery since they were first discovered in the 1860s. If you pick up a copy of Prospect magazine, you'll also be able to read an article about our cultural attitude towards Neanderthals over the centuries. Rebecca, thanks so much for joining us on the Prospect interview. Thanks for having me. Um, it's a wonderful book. And um, the first thing I wanted to ask was, Neanderthals have exerted such an extraordinary pull on the human imagination ever since they were first identified. Um, why do you think that is? I think there's a lot of things going on, actually. I mean, it's 165 odd years now since we first discovered that uh, the Neanderthals existed and they represented at that time the first confirmation that there had been other forms of humanity on Earth. Um, and, you know, that was a really big deal in the middle of the 19th century for many different reasons. Um, so I think there's that factor that they they emerged right at a point in the 19th century when many different intellectual disciplines were sort of solidifying as scientific disciplines. Um, and there was a real emerging understanding of the depths of geological time um, and you know, trying to fit where we were placed into that was difficult. And then the Neanderthals emerge as this other type of human and people were struggling how to how to place that how to frame that so that's sort of one factor but also the neanderthals immediately started to play a role as um as an other you know the archetypal other and that has been something that has gone on all the way through since the mid 19th century you know through all the different archaeological discoveries and advances in how we think about things they still play that role even today although our understanding of them but also our feelings about them have shifted quite a lot so when they were first discovered when let's say the first the first skeleton that was identified as being you know different was discovered what were the implications um realized quickly or was it was what did it take a long time for 
people to acknowledge that this was actually um, uh, a human, but as you say, a different kind of human. Well, that's it's really interesting, actually, because it, it raises the question of, you know, do we only see what we're ready to see? Because the first official recognition of um, of the Neanderthals actually at the Neanderthal, so that's the Neander Valley um, in Germany, um, that happened in 1856 um, when some uh, quarry workers were digging clay out of um, caves where they were mining in this very large gorge for marble and limestone and some bones emerged and the quarry manager recognised that they were not animal bones and therefore sort of kept them and passed them on. So that was 1856, but in fact there had been previous finds of Neanderthals, but they were not recognised as anything out of the ordinary. Um, there was uh, some in 1836 in Belgium and also 1848 in Gibraltar. There was an entire skull um, that was found. It was encased in sort of, you know, crusty stuff and, and it wasn't a perfect skull. So you can argue, or maybe they couldn't see, but actually even in the original photographs, you can see it looks odd. You know, it has huge eyes and things like this. And yet it was not recorded. Um, it was actually the, the regimental scientific society. Um, they just recorded it in their minutes as a skull. Um, and it, then it sat there in Gibraltar um, until 1863. So after the German find. So, you know, in that sense, early Neanderthals were a bit like buses, you know, like there were several coming along at once, as it were, um, within sort of 50 years or so. Um, but it was only at that point um, in 1856 when I think people's attention was really heightened towards fossil deposits in general. You know, people had been fossiling for fun for quite a while you know Mary Anning a huge fossiling phenomenon and um, that's the early 1800s and her stuff is marine reptiles not um, Neanderthals or Ice Age creatures but an interest had been there for a while but I think the scientific um, sort of understanding of the later um, geological period so the Quaternary period which is where we find Neanderthals um, that was really sort of um, getting heightened interest towards the middle of the 19th century and I think that's the point at which everything comes together and then you've got like you know you've got um, uh, Wallace and Darwin working on their ideas about natural selection and things like this so things were really sort of I guess it was a it was a synthesis of different moments but the other thing that's funny is that alongside all of this since the 1830s onwards there had also been interest in the finds of stone artifacts from different contexts in Europe, um, clearly, you know, deeply buried in river gravels or in caves underneath flowstones. So clearly they had to be massively ancient. They were being found with the remains of extinct animals. And yet the Neanderthal fossil remains were not found with any artifacts or nobody noticed them. And so Neanderthals existed as these fossil type of human and then there were these stone tools that nobody knew who made them and in fact it took until the 1880s when there were some further finds um, in Belgium for Neanderthal fossils to actually be found alongside artifacts and from that point Neanderthals had culture. So if we're looking just purely at the physical differences uh, first of all, it, if you were to sort of um, you know uh, 
magically Jurassic Park style bring a Neanderthal uh, uh, back to life now? How would they look different uh, from us? Well, I think if people, you know, I mean, I hope people in general are moving away from the idea of, you know, bent over very sort of ugh caveman ideas. Um, although that's been such a strong cliche for a while, but Neanderthals are very close to us in evolutionary terms, you know, chronologically, um, they're far more recent than our deepest, deepest other forms of, of hominins. So, you know, human sort of ancestral relations. We have um, the earliest stone tools go back to 3.3 million years ago. And the sort of types of um, hominins making those were far more primitive. Whereas the Neanderthals actually emerge about the same time as our lineage emerges, somewhere between 400 and 350,000 years ago. So really not far, you know, in time compared to three and a, three and a half million years ago. And on that basis, we should actually expect them to be you know, quite similar to us. We share a common ancestor, only five, uh, five and a half. Um, or we share a common ancestor um, only 550,000 years ago. So it's all very recent. And when you look at their skeletons, in fact, yes, they are very human-like. Um, they, they're a bit shorter than us, um, but they are fully upright in how they walk. They're bipedal, you know, walking on two legs. Um, the differences are more sort of about shape and things like this. Um, so, for example, um, they have much more barrel shaped chests than we do. We have waists that sort of nip in a little bit. Um, their ribs are more flared, so they don't have that kind of waist that we had. And that's probably actually rather than cold adaptations, which have been you know, they were the favoured ideas for why Neanderthals look different for many decades. We now believe that many of the physical differences um, may be to do with extremely intensive physical lifestyles and actually needing to get a lot of oxygen in, basically. Um, and that could also explain another very clear difference you would see if you were standing in front of a Neanderthal, which is um, that their, their nose is really impressively large, um, you know, sort of Charles II <laughs> type um, face, you know, um, but their whole face was different. It was pulled forward a little bit more. So from the nose and the mouth, they sort of looked a little bit more snouty, I guess, without making them sound um, animal-like. Um, and that's just because they had more bone forming cells there, whereas we have bone absorbing cells. Their eyes, as I said, were larger, um, but the skull shape is noticeably sort of swept back. We have very vertical foreheads and quite balloon shaped skulls, um, you know, which, you know, in that sense, we're the weird ones in, in, in our hominid family with these balloon heads and flat faces, um, whereas Neanderthals, which much more sort of aerodynamic looking skulls, but there are other little differences all over the body. Um, for example, behind um, their third molar, so the wisdom tooth, there was a gap um, between the tooth and sort of the, the arching part of the jaw. And that's to do with their faces being pulled more forwards and things like this. So there's a mixture of larger scale things where you would look and you would say, oh yeah, they look unusual. And then if you actually look at the bones all over the body, you pull out little other things that are going on. But I think the impression, if you met a Neanderthal, you would be really impressed with them. Um, they're physically very, very strong, very capable, um, and would look extremely athletic. One of the amazing things about the book is, that, is the amount that um, uh, 
you, you and your colleagues have managed to sort of work out about uh, Neanderthals from um, just seemingly sort of um, scraps and little bits of evidence. Um, the, the the teeth, for example, you seem to be you work out an amazing amount about what they did just by looking at how worn their teeth their teeth um, are. Can you tell us, tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, this is one of the this is the key reason I really wanted to to write the book because although you know everyone has <laughs> everyone has heard of Neanderthals and they're in the press a lot in terms of new discoveries and things like this, but there is just a vast amount of other stuff that we know about their lives that doesn't get into mainstream media, and it's all really fascinating. So I wanted to synthesize that archaeological knowledge, but that knowledge exists. Okay, there's, there's you know, 165 years of, of scholar, uh, scholarly work on Neanderthals, but also the past sort of 30, 40 years have seen massive advances in um, different aspects of how we do archaeology. So we don't sort of just pick out the nice bits anymore. We collect everything. It's like total collection policy. And we do that because we've understood, for example, that if you collect all the tiny little chips and shards of stone, you can actually refit sequences of stone tool production back together and watch in reverse the decision making of an individual Neanderthal 55,000 years ago. Um, and, you know, early prehistorians were not doing that. They just kept the, the pretty looking bits. So there's that approach, but also scientific archaeology, you know, archaeological science has just boomed. There are so many sub-disciplines. And even when we're just talking about teeth, there's actually a ton of different things that we can do <laughs> to teeth to find things out. So we can subject them to um, scanning work um, using really sophisticated um, uh, scanning machines, uh, 3D scanning machines, and we can look at the, the growth lines, you know, every couple of days um, when teeth are actually forming, um, they have little lines that, that uh, build up and we can do that as a means to assess the different growth rates between Neanderthal children and our children, for example. Um, we can look at the pitting on the teeth. Um, so whenever you eat your food, um, micro pits and micro scratches accumulate on your teeth um, and they build up a pattern. We can see sort of at a gross scale the sorts of foods being eaten, you know, hard foods, soft foods, plants, meat, that kind of thing. Um, so we can do that. We can similarly look for different sorts of scratches which tell us about how Neanderthals were using their mouths as like a third hand. You know, like if, you, if you're doing something with two hands and then you need to hold something else you sometimes put it in your mouth they were doing that um, quite routinely actually and probably as, as a means of potentially holding on to things like skins if you're working animal skins you hold on to it and you sort of put it through your teeth and stuff like this we can see that kind of thing going on with neanderthals we can even look for regional differences um, and then you can look for residues on teeth as well um, we can look for micro uh, plant residues in you know calculus dental calculus that's the stuff you go to your hygienist to get removed that's actually really important for archaeologists we're happy that they didn't remove it um, and that can tell us um, we can see uh, tiny remains of uh, food so that is one um, area that gives us good evidence that they were eating plants potentially boiling um, plants because uh, we can see differences in the damage to starch grains for example and we can even look for dna in that as well 
So there's just in their teeth, there's this enormous plethora of angles that we can take to try and find out about their lives. You talk about them eating plants there. They have a reputation for um, being carnivores and hunters and, and, and butchers um, as well. And you do say they, do have, they did have to eat a lot of calories to keep themselves going every day, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, although Neanderthals are um, shorter on average, their bodies are more massive. So we believe based on, you know, we have a really good understanding now of how our bodies work and, you know, calorific needs and sort of how much energy it takes just to keep a body running, you know, beat your heart, all that kind of stuff. And we try and apply that to the Neanderthal body and model it. And it basically comes out that they did need, you know, quite a substantial amount more calories a day. But yeah, the question of how they get that food is very interesting. And certainly for many Neanderthals through time, and I should say, you know, they emerged around sort of 350,000 years ago, and they lived all the way through to 40,000 years ago. That's a massive span of time. And that covers multiple phases of immense climate change from glacial periods through to periods like we're in now, which is an interglacial warm period where we have a lot of forests. So Neanderthals lived through all of those changes. And that means they had to adapt to very different environments where there was different sorts of food. So Neanderthals during colder periods or in more open environments like steppe tundra, they would, we would expect them to primarily be eating meat because it's what's mostly available. And that is what we see. Um, but Neanderthals who were living in forested environments um, 123,000 years ago, they seem to have been doing more things with plant food. And that's based on um, sort of the wear patterns on the teeth um, largely. But also you look at the geographic regions because they not only lived through this huge um, span of time, but we find Neanderthals across a very broad range. You know, they have this reputation as European species, but they are far more accurately described as a Eurasian, Western Eurasian hominin. Um, and so, you know, there are some in Wales where I am, goes right through to the Near East, into Siberia. But Neanderthals from the Near East, um, where the environments are warmer, um, more plant food potentially. Um, and we do see some evidence that plants were perhaps more um, of an everyday part of their diet. And there are some sites where we find uh, micro remains in the, the ashy lenses of hearth, for example, and all different sorts of plant food there and fruits and legumes and things. So, you know, they certainly, everywhere they were, they were top tier hunters in their environment. No question about that. They were skilled systematic butchers, but depending on what was around them, they took the best of, of what they had, and that did include plants. So all that you've described so far, you know, the, the sophisticated hunting, the tool making, um, skinning, um, um, communities, it, all this implies that there, there was communication between them or levels of, a sophisticated level of communication um, between them. And can we, can we know um, how developed that was? Well, it's a really, really tricky question, and there's different ways to sort of come at the answer. One is to look at the anatomy and sort of see, you know, what what's possible with with a Neanderthal body, and sort of I think general opinion on that has shifted um, towards being conservative and saying, well, maybe they could, maybe they couldn't. But actually, I think overall now people would say that they probably 
could make a reasonable range of you know vocal noises vocalizations um and more interestingly there's been um more recent work looking at um their ear anatomy to try and work out what their hearing was tuned into and really fascinatingly it seems very close to ours and our own hearing is tuned into the frequencies of, of speech um you know and neanderthals is very similar um so that implies not only that vocal communication of some sort was really important in their everyday life but also that it probably was for our common ancestor with them as well um going back therefore 550 to 750,000 years ago so that's probably quite a deep thing in the hominin past but you know what were they actually saying is is the question isn't it um and for that we need to look at the archaeology and that tells us that they were cooperative in how they hunted they had to be um and even more than that if you look at what goes on after the hunt um i said they were systematic um, butchers they were um there was not sort of like a scrum at the kill you know these were being taken apart very carefully the bodies of animals and they also systematically chose the best ma most marrow rich fattest um parts to take away and process elsewhere so this actually seems to be a society that isn't based on aggressive competition necessarily but is potentially much more based on sharing of resources which would i think promote a context where there is um vocal communication perhaps sharing information and then you look at other things like the technology and you can look at how difficult is it basically to do some of the the stone tool uh, production that they did or you can look at some other aspects of technology which i find very interesting um where they are making glues because they had composite technology where they stick you know a piece of stone on a piece of wood as a handle and you need the glue to that to do that and we know they made birch tar um, which you have to cook out of birch bark um, and they also um, appear to have been uh, using recipes for glues there's an italian site recently found where they seem to be mixing um, a pine or a conifer resin with beeswax and cognitively that is really quite sophisticated and it you know there is very interesting ideas about links between language and the construction of sentences um being made of different parts with technology that is made of different parts that has to be constructed in an order and and hierarchical thinking so overall i think there's definitely some kind of language but in terms of were they able to tell stories and talk at the, the level of sort of complicatedness that we're doing right now that is the question and the other kind of you know big question that um all of us sort of uh, amateurs interested in you know neanderthals are uh are most curious about you know what can we know about their belief systems or their religion if they if you can use that word or their artistic bent you know i know there's a circle of stalagmites you write about that's been found in southern france that are apparently been put together by um neanderthals the evidence is pretty fragmentary but what what can we know about those sort of um their imaginative capacity let's put it that way yeah i think i think thinking about things from the perspective of imagination and aesthetics is probably a little bit safer like you know when you talk about art or religion for for us today those have very specific meanings they are like formalized shared systems of meaning with iconography 
commonly understood symbols and things. And I don't think we can say anything like that for Neanderthals based on the evidence we've got. What we can say though, is that whether you're talking about their choices in how they butchered animals or the stones that they used, it's clear they were really interested in quality, in material quality. And then you shift to their engagement with other materials that doesn't seem to be to do with sort of survival or function, things like pigments or fossils. And here you see a similar interest in material quality. So the amount of, as you say, it is fragmentary, but it's there across many more sites than used to be believed. And in some places in reasonable, reasonably significant amounts, um, we can see an interest in pigments or black colors, but also reds, oranges, yellows, and linking to sort of them mixing things together to make glues. We also see pigment recipes in some places. And what are they doing with these pigments? Well, you could do a lot with pigment and, you know, natural mineral pigments, ochres or whatever that is practical. You can use it for as like sunscreen and stuff like this. But what we see them doing it um, with it um, in some cases is applying it to surfaces um, and moreover surfaces of things which don't seem to be related to everyday living. So like the outer surface of a fossil shell from an Italian site is a really good example. That shell was, must have been found about 100 kilometers from the site itself, the cave where it was dropped, um, Grotta Fumani it's called. Um, that had to have been carried, you know, there's it's nothing to do with food, it's a fossil shell already. Um, and then on the outside of it, it has a red pigment and that pigment came from 40 kilometers in another direction. So you have these two substances, unusual in themselves, and they're brought together and apparently to change only the outer surface of this little shell. So, you know, what is that about? It's really difficult to say for that particular object, but we see similar things going on in other sites. The same sort of thing is there with um, uh, eagle talons from a site in Croatia called Krapina. And one of those talons, we knew about the talons already, that was interesting, you know, why are they collecting eagle talons? We don't know. But one of those talons turns out to have a pigment mix on the outside, just a tiny bit. But again, it's not local pigments, you know, so there's something going on with an interest in materials, in altering the appearance of things. And yes, that site in France that you mentioned that I wrote about, um, these very large stalagmite ring structures, they're about 10 meters across, and it's a site called uh, Bruniquel. Um, it's in this chamber in, in a cave system about 300 meters into a hill. So this is not a living site. It's too dark um, you know, you can't see anything without light. It doesn't make sense as a living, a living place. Um, but there are these two rings formed by snapping off stalagmites um, and selecting them by size again. So we can see this whole interest in quality there. We don't know why they made them into rings. There's also burning on some of them. But this was going on, um, those rings were formed 174,000 years ago. As far as we know, there's nobody in Western Europe except Neanderthals at that point. So it pretty much got to be Neanderthals. And it's utterly unique, very strange. Um, nothing else like that is made for, you know, hundreds, 150,000 years plus um, in terms of archaeology. And it's not just rings shoved together. If you actually sort of look at the structure, they have built piece upon piece. You know, this little piece is balanced. There are things stacked up. 
So it really is a construction. It's some sort of, yeah, built form, but we don't know what the motivation for that was. But it could link to ideas about aesthetics, about stalagmites as a strange substance. You know, there are these, if you go into cave systems, if you're familiar with caves, you know, caves are weird places anyway. They mess about with our senses, especially in the dark regions where you need artificial light. There's odd sounds, odd smells. Um, everything is weird. And then you look at the natural formations in caves and quite often they look oddly organic, um, you know, like fingers or flaps of skin or things like this. Um, and so perhaps they saw an echo of something familiar to them, but in this other material, this stone-like material. So, you know, who knows, but it exists. <laughs> um, and it, it, it forces us to kind of make links with all these other interesting aesthetic things the Antitiles were up to. And there may be something there to do with, I don't know, fundamental origins of feelings of transcendence of, I don't know, you know, an aesthetic interest that, is, that emerges from, from being embodied creatures, as we all are, you know, we live in bodies, we experience things through our senses. Um, it may be something like that. And we tend to look at Neanderthals and see a sort of fable about us, about um, uh, modern humans. You think about a novel like William Golding's The Inheritors, which posits that, you know, it was the more advanced but crueler, um, homo sapiens who wiped out the innocent Neanderthals. Now that makes a, um, a great novel, but um, we have, you know, when it comes to sort of the end story of the Neanderthals, um, are, we, are we any clearer about, you know, why they died, died out or, 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 and whether human, you know, homo sapiens had any part to play in that? Um, it's hard to say. I mean, The Inheritors is a wonderful book and I do quote from it um, in my exists. It is a fantastic book and it was very important in, yeah, reversing assumptions about who we think the Antitals are. But yeah, where we are today, I think, the <laughs> annoyingly, as archaeologists always say, things are more complicated. Um, we have had a couple of big shifts in understanding. One is that we know now, and we've known for a decade now, that there definitely was interbreeding between ourselves and Neanderthals. And also that didn't just happen at the end at this sort of time around 40,000 years ago, after which we see no more fossils of, of theirs or any of the archeology span that they made. Um, so that seems to be the end point. And there was interbreeding happening late, but also we can see that there were different phases of interbreeding going back, you know, 200,000 years plus. So that is a different picture to the traditional idea that we, you know, Homo sapiens began sweeping out of Africa and just sort of, you know, knocked all the other hominins in Eurasia out of the way. That's really out of date. We know as well as that there was interbreeding, we, we know that that wasn't just happening at the fringes of Eurasia, very probably, because those dispersals of early hominins, of, uh, those dispersals of early Homo sapiens were not just happening late. They also were going on early. We now have evidence for early Homo sapiens about 180,000 years ago in the Near East, over in East Asia, probably 80,000 or, or more in Australia by 60, 55,000 years ago. So the period of time over which we were dispersing into Eurasia and encountering Neanderthals and also other hominins who were living in 
Eurasia as well. So the Denisovans, a close relation of Neanderthals. That whole stretch of time has really expanded. So now I think the interesting question is, if we were so much more sophisticated, um, or we are assuming that Homo sapiens from its first emergence was super sophisticated, why did it take so long for us to displace Neanderthals, you know, and why did it take so long for us to enter Europe as well? Um, the Neanderthals seem to have had that to themselves for until at least 45,000 years ago. Um, there's some incursions in the east of Europe from early Homo sapiens, but not before that. So why does it take so long? And I think there's we need to rethink our assumptions about early Homo sapiens, you know, about those very early populations. They were not the same as those uh, emerging in later pulses, sort of 50,000, 40,000. I think it's that later period where there may well be something different that's due to perhaps cognition, um, but also something that is involved in how populations are structured. So for Neanderthals and for early Homo sapiens, there's never very many of either of them around in the landscape, but we get a stronger picture from Neanderthals, and this is coming from genetics, that they lived in more isolated, cut off, smaller breeding populations, whereas you don't see that same signal from the early Homo sapiens um, groups. So it may be something to do with that, that we had stronger systems that allowed us to remain better connected across very large landscapes. And that could be important when you factor in climate change, which was going on at the time. So it wasn't hugely cold, but the climate was extremely unstable. Um, you know, there was a lot of uh, massive shifts and drops in temperature and raises in temperature and things like this. And that would have massively impacted the environment and the species that everybody relied on. So perhaps you put all that together and you get a mix where Neanderthals maybe just were unlucky. Um, and we happened to be a little bit better at some things which allowed us to scrape through. And finally, just, um, you know, we tend to look at Neanderthals as the, you know, the they 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 faded away and, and we we triumphed but in many ways your book tries to refocus it and look at um look at them on, the, on their own terms and in, in many ways they were hugely successful over many hundreds of thousands of years and what can they what can they teach us about survival in some ways well yeah i mean i i have always sort of thought what you know that the end of the neanderthals is the least interesting thing about them in some ways um you know i'm, I'm interested in all the different ways that they adapted to these very diverse worlds that they lived in and yeah they were really successful for a very long time um but i think yes the the end of the neanderthals and that period between 50 to 40 to 30,000 years ago when you know other hominins drop away as well and it ends up being basically just us by about 20,000 years ago we're the only form of hominin left on the planet you know there is something interesting there people have argued well we seem to be pretty good at forcing things to be extinct is that something in us but I, I don't know about that but what I do know is um looking at the long durée perspective um there's a great book uh, by Peter Brannan about um you know, the deep time extinctions that have happened on Earth, um, you know, tens, hundreds of millions of years ago. Um, and quite often you see something similar. There's a lot of organisms that are doing very, very well. And nonetheless, they get extinct. 
um, when times are extremely challenging. And the ones that pull through are not necessarily better adapted. I think they're just lucky. Um, so I think, you know, there's a little bit of humility there for us. And I, <laughs> as a somebody who thinks on geological timescales and about climate change and stuff, it's very difficult not to look at where we are right now and the climate crisis that we are facing is leagues beyond what any other hominin has ever had to survive. You know, we are looking at changes on a time scale in the blink of an eye. Um, and also we don't have empty continents to shift into. We've got to deal with it where we are. Um, and that's quite scary, um, you know, and I think we have to not assume that we'll, that we will just, you know, be able to ride it out necessarily. We have to really start dealing with it. Um, and, you know, I think maybe that's a, a deep time perspective that the Neanderthals can give us that they perhaps were extinct through no fault of their own. Um, and some of those very early Homo sapiens populations I mentioned going into Eurasia, well before 40,000 years, they also went extinct. They don't have living descendants either. Um, so yeah, there's a lot to think about. Rebecca Ragsikes, thank you so much. Thank you very much. And that's all from us. Thank you very much for joining us this week. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do subscribe and do check out the magazine as well and our website where you can find lots of fascinating articles on this subject and many others. Goodbye, stay safe and see you next week.